Welcome, everybody. Great to see you again. Over the past, oh, more than a month now, I suppose, we've been doing a series on the book of Psalms. Uh, for one thing, I wasn't quite sure when our new rector would come. And so doing a series on the Psalms is kind of safe because you can do one Psalm a Sunday. And no one feels like they're being left out if um, someone comes along and changes course when our new rector Benjamin Wall comes in the new year, we pray. And we've been looking in particular at the structure of the book of Psalms and the way in which many Psalms point to Christ. And as we get oriented to what I'm wanting to say here today, I want to draw your attention to um, a handout. There's a kind of a single sheet that's floating around. The retired professor has given you his usual uh, lengthy handout that we'll be referring to um, which you can refer to mostly on your own after the service if you wish. But the handout is the guide. And today in our series on the structure of the book of Psalms, we now come to the end of the book of Psalms. A few weeks ago, we noticed that Psalms 1 and 2 introduce the book of Psalms by telling us that we can meditate upon the book of Psalms as a means of growth and that the subject matter of the book of Psalms, according to Psalm 2, is the king of the Jews, whom God has invested his authority in, which is a surprise and a wake-up call to the nations. We'll return to the theme of Psalm 2 in Psalm 149. Last week, we looked at the middle psalm, and I was never very good at math, but Psalm 73 is the middle psalm if you understand Psalm 146 to begin the conclusion. And we saw that Psalm 73 was kind of a call not to, not to slip off the path, that it would be easy to lose it. It would be easy to walk away from the path of Psalm 1 by envying the prosperity of the wicked. And so last week we learned about taking an eternal focus and by looking at the prosperity of the wicked from an eternal perspective. And today we come to the conclusion of the Psalms. Psalms 146 to 150. These five Psalms conclude the book of Psalms. They all begin and end with hallelujah. So guess what? The subject of my sermon today is about praise. And there are two words that sum it up, and I have it at the top of your outline. Enjoy God. Enjoy God. If you remember nothing else, you would do well to remember that. That praising God is an invitation for us to enjoy God to an invitation for us to take our eyes off of ourselves and onto that most glorious object, that object which is none other than God himself. One of my favorite essays on the Psalms is by C.S. Lewis, and I've included in the back of your handout several quotes from his chapter about praising. But C.S. Lewis says of God, he is that object to admire which, or if you like to appreciate which, is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world, not to appreciate which, is to have lost the greatest experience, and in the end, to have lost all. So today, we look at the topic of praise, and we focus on the conclusion of the book of Psalms. Psalms 146 to 50, but that seemed too many, so I have chosen the last two Psalms, Psalms 149 and 50. And we're going to be looking at the subject of praise under two categories. First, praise in general. And then second, 
praise in the context of Psalms 149 to 50. Let me begin with kind of a personal reflection. I find talk about praise um, difficult. Uh, it's something that we all want to do, but it's something that I think we feel horribly inadequate at. And it's extremely out of fashion. I suspect that there hasn't been a time in the history of the church when God's people have found it harder to praise God. Because, frankly, there's a downside to our technological advancement. Ever since the Enlightenment, we have thought less about God and concentrated more on how things work. Did you know that before the Enlightenment, if you were to ask somebody why water falls from heaven, the answer would have nothing to do with gravity. It would have everything to do with, well, God created water so that it would come down and water the earth. Why does fire rise? Well, fire has a, purification, a purifying quality. Um, and so it, it, uh, it, it burns away the dross. And so naturally, its orientation is to go upwards towards God in heaven. And so people just naturally thought about the created world in terms of its relationship to God. But one of our problems is that we have become so sophisticated that we focus on the how and we leave aside the who and the why. And we just forget about God. Now we think in terms of gravity. Now we think in terms of things not having a purpose. One of the things that the Enlightenment took away from scholasticism, which was a way of thinking in the medieval period, was that things had a purpose. The Enlightenment tells us things in themselves don't have a purpose. They're simply governed by physics. This came home to me a little while ago when I was sitting in an airplane <clears throat> beside someone. And we got talking about God. And <clears throat> this, this guy said, you know, I have no understanding why anyone would believe in God. I mean, think of us. Here today, we're flying up in the air at 35,000 feet, enjoying technology. Um, and I just can't see how God fits in. Now think about his understanding and then think about the opposite. Well, wait a minute. We're in a pressurized cabin in a man-made machine, yes, at 35,000 feet, but we are floating on the air. We are relying on physics, which by the way, no one invented. It was discovered. The plane was put together uh, with uh, electrical circuitry and all kinds of mathematical principles put together none of which was invented by us, but which was discovered by us. So you can look at something like a plane trip and look at it as being the most secular thing in the world, or you can look at it if you open your eyes to the reality of God and see that God is everywhere. If we simply do one jump above that sophisticated smart stuff and begin to think about the who and the why, as well as the what, yes, I believe that we can recover something of the spirit of praise that pervades the Psalms. We have been robbed by our technology and by much that comes from the Enlightenment. I don't mean to poo-poo technology, we benefit from it greatly, but it has taken our minds off God and has blinded people to what is so clear in the book of Psalms, that everything that has breath ought to be giving praise to God. And that indeed all of creation praises God. The whole thing is orchestrated by God and directed to God. And we, as his followers, are to enter into this wonderful spirit of enjoyment and this wonderful spirit of discovery as we walk hand in hand with the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So let's take a look at Psalms under two headings, praise in general, and then praise in the context of Psalm 149 and 50. It's on your handout. I want to begin, I guess, by simply saying what is obvious, I hope, and what C.S. Lewis said in that famous essay of his on the reflection of the Psalms, that God does not need our praise. He's not some insecure dog looking for a pat on the head. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. C.S. Lewis reminds us that when we are invited to praise God, we are invited to enter into a relationship with God and to enjoy being with him. So praise is not something that God needs, though he is worthy of it, and it is conducive to his purposes. Well, that leads us to the question about what is praise in general. And for that, I kind of want to use a little bit of a, a hook, and that is to look at the word hallelujah itself. So praise in general, looking at the word hallelujah. I just want to say that normally you don't learn something by exploring the etymology of a word. Um, that can be a very misleading thing, but in this case, it, it, it functions as kind of a helpful hook. So walk with me through the two parts of the word hallelujah, and I hope that there will be some things that stay with us. One is that the verbal root, H-L-L, -L, means to boast. And in Genesis 12, chapter 15, there is a secular use of the word halal, praise. And that is when Pharaoh's attendants recognize the beauty of Sarah. You remember Abraham is going to Egypt, and he's worried that um, the Egyptians are going to kill him because his wife is so beautiful. A little bit hard to understand because um, we associate beauty with um, youth often, but Sarah's pretty old, but apparently she's incredibly beautiful. And it says that Pharaoh's servants praised Sarah. Well, imagine what they said. They said, Pharaoh, there's this woman coming with this guy named Abraham, and she is unbelievable. She is incredibly beautiful. You have to just come and see her. So in a sense, the word halal in a secular or even in a religious sense means to boast. It means to revel in. It means to um, laud, to describe in a favorable pattern. And so uh, whatever else praise is, praise is boasting in the character of God. The verbal form has three important elements, which are all hidden in the word hallelujah. The first is that it is a factative verb. Never mind that fancy word. What I mean is that the form of the verb is something akin to intensive. It's a, a supercharged form of boast, if you will. And the factative sense I have in a footnote. and um, Think of the simple sense of a word and then the factative sense of a word, and I'll give you two examples. The simple sense of a word would be take. You took my toy. You took my garden hose. The factative sense is you made off with my toy. You made off with my garden hose. Same meaning, but it's just kind of trumped up, and it's a little bit more proactive. Or I don't know whether people still talk about this, but we used to talk about somebody making out with his girlfriend. You know, it wasn't just kissing, which is basic, but making out is sort of, I don't know, something a little bit more trumped up than that. So a simple form is kiss. A factative form is making out with. Well, that's what the word boast is. It is an elevated form of boasting, and it's, it's make with the bragging. It's, it's proactive. It's intensive. It's focused. It's also, secondly, plural. 
Hallelujah, the ooh is plural. And this is important because of our individualistic society. You can't sit at home and praise God when you're watching um, um, you know, church on Zoom. Uh, you can, but it's, it's very counterintuitive. Uh, we are a community. We are invited and encouraged to come to church. And one of the reasons we do that is so that we can praise God together. I think I've said before that Gordon Fee of Regent College, of all people in all places, Pentecostal, said God did not come to save a bunch of individuals. He came to create a people. And if you're not affiliated with the people and doing the things that other people are doing in the name of God in a church context, well, Fee says, you might be a Christian, but you're not a Christian that I ever read about in the New Testament. So hallelujah and praise is something that we do corporately. We can do it individually, but it's just not the same. And besides, when you think about it, if you go to Niagara Falls on your own and you don't talk to anybody, you enjoy the waterfall coming down over the edge, but there's something about Niagara Falls that just makes you want to nudge the person beside you and say, take a look at that water. Awesome. Look at the way it rolls over the rock. Look at the way it crashes hundreds of feet down. In other words, there's something that helps our enjoyment of God and that helps enter into the spirit of praise if we do it corporately. And it's something that's very intentional, and it's something that helps us to enjoy God. We all like going places and seeing things with other people. And then thirdly, it's an imperative. That is an old-fashioned grammatical command. Now, that doesn't mean that when we say hallelujah, or when God says hallelujah, that he's commanding us to praise. But underlining it, there's sure to be a strong admonition. This is something that we are bidden to do. So that's the first part of the hallelujah. And then the second part is the yah. Yes, J-A. I had to look up how to spell hallelujah in English uh, because I'm just so used to, to, uh, to, to seeing it um, in the different language. But yes, it's, it is pronounced with a J, but the J is misleading. It should be a Y. There's an explanation for that that Ling Zi might be able to help you with more than I, but it has to do with the way that Germans and English people used to say um, the word Y in Hebrew. So the Yah is Yah, and Yah is short for Yahweh. So God is the object of our praise, most often in the Old Testament. And certainly in Psalm 149 and 150, when we're bidden to praise God, um, He is the object of our praise. When I used to talk about praise in years gone by, I used to make fun of people when they said hallelujah. And that is because um, it's like telling somebody to uh, go and talk about Aunt Mabel. And uh, if somebody says, talk about Aunt Mabel, talk about Aunt Mabel, you want to say, well, okay, go ahead. Somebody start talking, right? And hallelujah is like that. It says, boast in the Lord, boast in the Lord. And it is an admonition for us to begin to describe the character of God and to revel in God's character. But it also is an expression of praise, isn't it? It's like Hosanna. Uh, when we say Hosanna in the highest, it's an expression of praise. It's an expression of worship. And Hosanna has nothing to do with the etymology of the word, unlike hallelujah. Hosanna means help, please, originally. But of course, it's an expression of praise, like praise. So I want to suggest that when we say hallelujah, and when the Pentecostals say hallelujah, and when the uh, Anglicans say it wherever it occurs in the prayer book, which is pretty often, that we're actually praising God, even though technically we're inviting others to start bragging about God. So it's a case of having your cake and eat it too. 
Now let's look at Psalm 149 and 50 and to find out what we can find out about praise in this particular pair of Psalms. Now, in order to understand Psalm 149 and 50, we need to understand how the book of Psalms concludes. As I've mentioned many times before over the past few weeks, scholars in recent times have discovered that the five books are ordered with a purpose. If you turn to page five of your handout, I just want to remind us what Psalms 107 to 50 are, and you can read about the purpose of the other books. Psalm, uh, page five, book five, Psalms 107 to 50. Book five shows that God's commitment to his promises to David remained unwavering. And David, therefore, returns to prominence in the book of Psalms. You remember in Psalm 89 at the end of book three, it seemed as though he had died and there was a crisis. But in book five, in Psalms 110, which Jesus, of course, quoted in support of his own divinity as, Jesus, as the Messiah, uh, David is back. He has been resurrected, as it were. And so at the beginning and the end of the book, Psalm 108 and 110, and Psalm 138 to 45, and in the all-important Psalm 132, then it says the book ends by extolling David, the Lord's anointed king, Psalm 144, and the Lord himself, the divine king, Psalm 145, echoing the beginning of the Psalter, Psalms 1 and 2, which also features the Lord and his anointed king. And in the final climax of praise, Psalm 149 anticipates God's victory over the rebellious nations and rulers introduced in Psalm 2. You're probably saying to yourself, oh my, uh, what was all that? This is what it was all about. I've already said that Psalms 1 and 2 introduced the book of Psalms by talking about the Messiah as being the focal point of the book of Psalms. And now in Psalm 149, this psalm of praise is also about this Messiah. So Psalm 149 and 150 kind of bookend with Psalms 1 and 2, the whole book of Psalms, and they say it's all about the kingship of God. It's moving from lament to praise. It's moving towards the adoration of God. But I want to say, first of all, that it is spawned by David and his promised heir. You see, before the conclusion to the book of Psalms in 146 to 150, we have Psalms 144 and 145, which are Davidic. And we have Psalms 138 to 145, which are Davidic. Why does that matter? Well, it matters, my friends, because the one who leads us into praise, the one who leads us into the climactic praise that concludes the book of Psalms is none other than David himself. And this isn't King David. King David's gone long ago. This is the promised heir, the one whom we rightly identify with Jesus Christ. So ultimately, according to Psalm 149 and 150, it is David who introduces us to the idea of praising God. It is the son of David who gives us reason to understand the character of God and to praise him. So Psalms 144 and 145 just kind of nudge us before we come to that concluding part of praise. And they say, friend, Jesus has everything to do with your praising God. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, is the one who prompts our praise. And I suspect that if you were to ask me or ask anyone else in this room, one of the reasons why you love God and one of the reasons why you revel in God's character, you'd very soon start talking about his son, Jesus Christ. I met Jesus when I was this age. Jesus saved me from my sins. Jesus turned my life around. Or Jesus has been with me my whole life long. I've never known anybody else but Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who is the heir and the author, ultimately, of our reason to praise God. And that's why in Psalm 150, we just kind of take right off into the clouds. It's as though we've already ascended with Jesus, because we will be praising him forever and ever. So the first thing we learn about praise in the context of Psalm 149 and 150 is, it's spawned by David and his promised heir, the Messiah. Read Psalm 144 and 145, and you'll see it. In Psalm 149, it is also tied to the Messiah's mission of redemption and judgment. I wonder if you noticed when we read Psalm 149 that there was kind of a scary part. Turn back to page 1 of our 8.5 by 11 handout, and you'll notice when you look at Psalm 1, verses 1 to 4, I mean, everything is going fine, right? Sing to the Lord a new song, his praises in the assembly of godly covenanters. Um, hallelujah, his name with dancing, tambourine, and lyre. Everything's going well. And then you come to an oddly militant part in verses 5 to 9. Lofty exultations in their throats, two-edged swords in their hands, to enact retribution upon the nations, retribution upon the peoples, to bind their kings with shackles and their nobles with chains of, joy, of uh, iron. If you were to compare this part with Psalm 2, the ending of Psalm 2, you'd find that there's a parallel. One of the roles of the Messiah, of the anointed son of David, is to make things right in the end. And that includes us to continue the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in Psalm 149, it sounds as though we are the ones who are to enact judgment, bringing forth peace. We are the ones who are to bind kings and their shackles. So my friends, there's a, a, a mandate here that comes in Psalm 149 that makes it part and parcel of what it means for a Christian to praise God. Psalm 149 are hard. And in this time when we're thinking about the conflict between Israel and Gaza, and we think about covenant followers taking up swords and enacting vengeance upon pagan nations, it sounds kind of scary. And I want to remind us that although this language is here, that Jesus, when he quoted Isaiah 42, from which this passage came, he stopped at reference to vengeance upon the nations. And he talked instead about bringing comfort to the afflicted. So my friends, I think that what we do with this is we either decide that we, we join the Messiah in not taking this action, which was his prerogative, but to go the path of peace and justice with the kingdom of peace and the kingdom of grace, or we bump it forward to the second coming, because we get an indication in scripture that we will participate with the returned Christ in making things right with the world, in punishing those who have been wayward, including having that punishment fall upon ourselves. Turn to page eight quickly, because this I think is very helpful. Wilcox, Michael Wilcox, in his commentary on the Psalms, in dealing with this difficult passage, he reminds us of the following, and I'm reading in the last, uh, starting with the last big paragraph on the way down. Jesus begins his ministry by proclaiming in the synagogue at Nazareth that he himself fulfills Isaiah prophecy, but significantly he stops short at Isaiah 61 2a. His coming into the world brings the year of the Lord's favor, not until his second coming, Will the day of the vengeance of our God arrive? 
Retribution for the nations, that is, for all who refuse to accept him as king and thus become his people, is threatened, and properly so in Psalm 149.7 and in Isaiah 61.2b. It is an obeyance so long as the message of Christ is being made known. It finally comes home to roost in Revelation 19.1-3, where the saints praise God for the day of vengeance. And then Wilcox continues, I think, with a helpful reminder, and I go down to the last paragraph. In the meantime, whatever the last judgment will be like, and whatever the church's part in it, the conflict in verses 6 to 9a of Psalm 149 of our psalm is already a reality. So far from toning down the violent language, the New Testament backs it up. The fighting talk of 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and Ephesians 6 and hymns derived from it, like Wesley's Soldiers of Christ Arise, show us the proper target of Christian aggression. Both sides in the religious wars of the past have misused this and similar warlike psalms, but that does not mean that they do not have a proper use. The powers of evil are abroad in our world, and this could not have been made more clear to us in the past two years. And it is for the church of God, with the praise of God in her mouth and the double-edged sword of Bible truth in her hands, to see that they do not have their way, that their plans are frustrated and their captives liberated. Where we know for certain the great enemy is mobilized, most especially within ourselves, let no quarter be given. So my friends, praise according to Psalms 149 to 50 is spawned by David. It's initiated by the son of David who introduces us to this praiseworthy conclusion. And then it's tied to the Messiah's mission of redemption and judgment. And we are, as it says in the last verse of Psalm 149, we are honored to have a part in that. In what sense do we participate in the redemption when we praise? I was struck in reading Rolf Jacobson, who was an Old Testament professor at Luther Seminary, who said, if we do not praise God, we withhold people's ability. We restrain people's ability to see God and to understand God. So it's kind of like passing the word along. If I begin to extol God's character, my neighbor is going to think, why is Glenn so excited? Why does he have that kind of glim, uh, smug look on his face all the time? It's because hopefully, uh, they recognize that we know God and that we have a relationship with God that is, um, that is life-changing is life and that is transformative. So when we praise, we not only enjoy God, but we also bear witness to what God has done redemptively in history. Finally, then, let's turn to Psalm 150, and I'll leave the, the rest of this, um, for the most part, um, to, um, to you afterwards. Psalm 150 ends up by telling us to grab whatever we can and to praise him. In this short psalm, the word hallelujah occurs 13 times. And it ends by saying, let everything with breath, hallelujah, boast about God, revel in his character, enjoy him, tell him what you think of him, because God is awesome. Earlier this week, and here's your cue, Robin, in the staff meeting, we were talking about Psalm 150, and uh, Robin, uh, who has uh, served in the Anglican Church for over 25 years, has preached many a sermon, probably many a sermon on Psalm 150. And I just wanted him to come and to give the, the second to the last word 
on Psalm 150. Robin? These are very simple words, um, a big come down from what we've heard from Glenn. But at our staff meeting, we looked at Psalm 150 for a few moments, and I offered three simple uh, reflections on the psalm, and Glenn has asked me to share those with you now. Psalm 150 could be looked at as an answer to three questions about praising God. First question, who is to praise the Lord? Second question, how are we to praise the Lord? Third question, why are we to praise the Lord? Question one, who is to praise the Lord? The response comes in verse six, that everything that breathes praise the Lord. I think I can safely say that that includes everyone who is sitting here. Question two, how are we to praise the Lord? The answer comes in verses three and five. Praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with lute and harp, praise him with timbrel and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. This means that we are to praise the Lord with all that we are and all that you have, we have. Now, you may not have many of these musical instruments listed in this psalm, but praise the Lord anyway with all that you have and all that you are. Question three, why are we to praise the Lord? The response comes in verse two. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his exceeding greatness. We praise the Lord for his mighty deeds, for his mighty deeds in creation, for his mighty deeds in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But we are to praise the Lord, not just for what he has done. The psalmist says, praise him for his exceeding greatness. That is his nature and his character, his exceeding greatness. His exceeding greatness is his unfathomable love, his infinite goodness and purity, his marvelous grace and mercy in coming into this world to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. In his mighty deeds and in his exceeding greatness, he is infinitely worthy of praise and adoration of worship and thanksgiving from us. Thanks be to God for gathering us together this afternoon to praise the Lord. Thank you, Robin. Let me conclude on a practical note in just the last minute that we have to return to some of the problems that we face in praising. I've already referred to this pseudo sophistication that we have that somehow makes us think that it's only simple minded people who praise. My friend, it takes a simple mind to think that everything is here simply by accident. 
God is the author of mathematics. He's the author of physics. He's the author of this most unlikely universe in which we live. And even though we understand better than we ever have about how things work, that doesn't take away one iota. The majesty and the character of the God who designed it all. In fact, it takes us further. Let me reach a little closer to home and build on an observation that C.S. Lewis had. He said that you'll notice, I'm going to read it. He said, I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capacious minds praise most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise least. We need to do a little bit of a psychological inventory. And I think the answer to the question, how likely you and I are to praise God, is rooted in a simple everyday question. How likely are you to give a compliment to another human being when you see them do something good? Do you sense that you're somehow losing part of yourself if you're generous and you, you award uh, a compliment to another person? If you do, I don't know how you're going to praise God. There's a take your mind off yourself and on to the other. And praising and honoring that other that is essential to praise. So let's start by whether we have a generous spirit towards each other. Whether we have a generous spirit towards the things that we enjoy in everyday life. If you see a beautiful sight, do you, do you comment on it? I hope so. If someone does you a favor, do you thank them? Do you praise them? I hope so. Because it is those most humble and balanced and capacious minds, says Lewis, who are perhaps most inclined to offer that praise. And then finally, there's an element of timidity. Uh, it's the same element of timidity that we find when we share the good news about Jesus Christ with others. I mean, who, would, who doesn't like sharing good news? <laughs> most of us, when it comes to the good news of the gospel, we're intimidated by what others we think. Uh, there's pluralism out there. This is just my opinion. My friends, good news is good news. The goodness of God is the goodness of God. And we do honor to him. And we further the kingdom when we revel in that character that is God's. My friend, this day, God is everywhere. Enjoy the view.